Jesus, as we turn our hearts and minds toward you, as we incline toward you today, um, I think what I feel compelled to pray is that we would have an undeniable encounter with you today and not something that we can write off as manufactured emotion. Um, And so, Jesus, you are so good at meeting each one of us where we are, and so we trust you to do that again today in this place. And so, where there is encouragement and comfort needed, Lord, thank you so much that you want to lean in with that as we lean into you. Thank you that where there is challenge needed, that you can bring that in a, in a way that is so gentle and yet so true. Lord, I just pray um, that as we open the scriptures together, your voice would speak. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If we have not met, my name is Kyle, and I get to be one of the pastors here, and I'm so honored that you would share part of your Sunday morning with us today. We, as a spiritual family, have been leaning into celebration as a spiritual practice, as an essential part of the life of Jesus, an essential part to following Jesus, and that's kind of what's in our minds and in our hearts as we enter the scriptures today. I'll be in Isaiah chapter 25. If you want to get flip there in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 25, the relevant passages will be on the screen, but I'm just so glad to be with you today. The final installment of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. The final installment is a book called The Last Battle. And at the very end of the last battle, Narnia, uh, the magical land found on the other side of wardrobes and paintings, that world is coming to an end. And so Jewel the unicorn laments the end of Narnia, saying, it's the only world I've ever known. But as Narnia fades away, something else happens, something else reappears that is more uh, in deeper and more vibrant detail. Narnia wasn't fading away. It was becoming more true, more real. C.S. Lewis writes, the Narnia that you're thinking of was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and will always be here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy, All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. He goes on, the new Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you get there, you'll know what I mean. And it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. 
I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. These characters who loved Narnia found that they loved only a shadow, or or put another way, everything that they enjoyed about Narnia was something that became more real as the world was remade. This idea, I have been looking for something, it's, it's the land I've been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now, that idea is something that C.S. Lewis explores at length in other places in his writing. He says that all of us possess an inner desire for a far-off country. We have a longing for the scent of a flower that we have not found. The echo of a tune that we have not heard is always in our ear. It's not something we can fully explain. Lewis diagnoses this, this longing. He, He diagnoses it as a longing for heaven for what Jewel the Unicorn calls home, the real country, the place we belong. Lewis elsewhere says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. When we see something particularly beautiful, a painting, a photograph, a song, we might have a sense of that longing, that searching for something that we we know is out there but we just can't quite find. When we are confronted by injustice, we might find that we have a similar sense of longing. We find ourselves desperate for the scent of justice that we're certain must exist somewhere perhaps in a far country that we've just not been able to seem to find, when we find ourselves in nature, seeing maybe the Grand Canyon for the first time, we might feel that longing too. We might find in ourselves this longing after a tune of a song that we can't fully describe. When we are confronted by nature and injustice and by beauty, it activates in us a sort of memory A deja vu-like experience. Only the thing is about that memory is that it's not a memory that comes from our our past. Because if it does, I, I couldn't place it back there. No, it's almost like the memory comes from the future. A memory in reverse. Lewis says that those moments of future memory are reverberations of heaven echoing down into the present. Now, there is one other time that we feel this longing for a country that we did not know, this echo of a tune that we can't quite place. There's one other time that we have that future memory come down to us, and it's, it's when we're grieving. Most of us tend to comfort ourselves in our grief by telling ourselves, we'll see this person again. 
It's this future memory of a reunion yet to come that we hold up against the darkness of our present to help us kind of navigate. And many of us in our grief have found paradoxically, ironically, that our grief is never so sharp as in moments of celebration. It's the holidays, it's, it's, it's the anniversaries, the weddings, when we find ourselves grieving the hardest. It's because we're gathering with everyone, or in our case, almost everyone. It's that moment when we feel our grief reach its peak. Why is it that celebration sparks grief? What if celebration is another one of those future memories reverberating into the present? What if, what if that's a future memory of a world that is not yet but soon will be? What if the grief we feel in the midst of our celebrating connects us with a deeper reality, and the reality is this. Heaven is a party. Heaven is a party. Turn with me to Isaiah 25. We're going to be in verses 6 through 9. Isaiah, by the way, the, the roof is not coming off. It's just the sound it makes, so fret not. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet, which means from time to time, Isaiah is given a glimpse into the future. It means Isaiah, from time to time, receives a foretaste of forever. And look at what he finds in Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. He says, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There's a contrast that Isaiah is building in this verse because he evokes one of God's more aggressive or militaristic names, the Lord of Heaven's armies, which leads you to think that Isaiah is about to say that the future is some sort of a cosmic battle, but instead, Isaiah sees a cosmic celebration. When Isaiah receives a foretaste of forever, he finds that forever is a feast. Eternity is a banquet. Heaven is a party. And when the people of the Mahoning Valley get there, we will ensure that there is a cookie table. Now, this is in contrast, by the way, to how a lot of us think of heaven. We're not really sure what heaven is like. In fact, I have a Far Side cartoon that I forgot to put in my slides. It's an, a guy, having gone to heaven, earned his wings, sitting on a cloud, and he has nothing to do. And it, there's a thought bubble above his head, and he says, I wish I'd brought a magazine. Oh, a mandatory, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Wow. Okay. Plus 50 points. Good job. Heaven is not a solitary experience. It is not boring. It is a party. And if we need more evidence, we only need to go to the teachings of Jesus, 
who, when given the chance, would liken heaven over and over and over again to a party. In fact, in Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables in a row. In the first, a shepherd loses one of his sheep, and so he leaves the 99 sheep, goes and finds the one, brings it back, and when he does, he throws a party, saying, what was lost has been found. In the second story, it's a woman who has lost one of her coins, and so she searches all over the house, and when she finds it, she calls one of her neighbors, rejoicing, saying, hey, I found the coin that I, was, I had lost. In the third, a man with two sons loses the one. When the younger son asks for his inheritance a little early, leaves town and spends it all on what the Bible calls uh, worthless living, I think it's just kind of an episode of like keeping up with the Kardashians is kind of what you need to picture. Um, but, in the theme, but what's so interesting is eventually the son in this story reaches kind of the end of himself, comes home, ready to beg for just kind of a job in his father's house, and his father welcomes him back with open arms. In fact, his father throws a party and calls all the neighbors in town and says, you've got to come and celebrate me because I thought my son was dead, was dead and now he's alive. In all three of these parables, there's this theme of celebration. And in fact, Jesus explicitly says, count on it. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. Can I just read that for the room again? Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches that heaven is a place of celebration. Isaiah revealed that first, that heaven would be a place of celebration, that the Lord of heaven's armies would prepare a feast for all nations of the finest of meats and the choicest of wines. And if you're Baptist, you're just going to have to get over that. <laughs> Isaiah reveals that heaven's a place of celebration, but what exactly is the occasion of the celebration? Verses 7 and 8, there, remember on the mountain where we're going to have the feast, there he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. You see, the occasion of the party, the reason for the celebration is that death has met its match. Death is a profoundly powerful force in our lives. Despite our best, deaths, our best attempts to ignore death or delay death, it still comes crashing in. And it always leaves in its wake away, uh, all sorts of chaos. Death is a powerful force in our lives. And yet, Isaiah, he's a poet, so he's choosing his language on purpose. Yeah? He, he, he tells us how easy it is for death to be defeated. So Isaiah likens death to a cloud which burns away in the heat of the day or is blown away by a strong wind. He likens it to a shadow which runs away the minute you turn on the lights. He likens it, doesn't he, to a morsel, that last little crumb on your plate that you just pop into your mouth. 
death for God is something that can be swallowed whole. As powerful as death is, it can be defeated. As powerful as death is, it can be defeated when faced with the right enemy. As Jesus hung on the cross, all of the death and evil in the world rushed onto his body. Jesus' cries of agony were like a dog whistle. All that was evil and of death in the world came rushing to him, and it crushed him, and and it killed him. And in that moment, sin and death and all that is evil appeared to be victorious as Jesus' broken body is laid in a borrowed tomb. But as Jesus rises again on the third day, he rises, the scriptures say, in possession of the keys. It's a great image, isn't it? With the keys to death and hell. Jesus rose again from the, from the dead. Death is in that moment crushed to death. And so Paul can say, death is swallowed up in victory. See the word swallowed again? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's a rhetorical question. Nowhere. It's a rhetorical question. Like when I come down for the day and Steph says, is that what you're wearing for today? <laughs> no, I guess not. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, this is the important part, because sometimes we mistake, we make a mistake. We think that because death is a small thing to God, it should be a small thing to us. Death is easily dispatched by God. But in his power over it, he still has compassion and tenderness toward us. Jesus shows up at the funeral for his friend Lazarus and he cries because death is always to be grieved. Death is a monster. Death is terrible. Death is an aberration on creation. It is not the way it's supposed to be. And what we tend to do is assume that because God has handled it, he just kind of walks by, pats us on the head, and kind of keeps going as if he expects us just to treat grief as something we need to get over. But Isaiah sees this, the sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. Imagine a king stepping off of his throne to hand a crying child his handkerchief. Psalm 34:18 says, "The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed." Psalm 56.8 says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Heaven is an eternal celebration over the death of death, but God doesn't rush us to the party. Just yesterday, Jack and I were at the grocery store, the the grocery store here in town, Sparkle, by naming that I got $5, so thank you. This this church service is provided to you by Sparkle Markets. (laughs) What I like about them, what Jack likes about them is they have the little carts, you know? So Jack likes to go to the special store, so we went yesterday, and usually Jack, like, sprints with the cart, uh, to the chagrin of some of the senior citizens in the aisles. Um, 
But so I was walking pretty quickly yesterday because I was assuming that would be the pace that we were going at, only to find Jack saying, no, daddy, we need to go nice and slow. <laughs> he said, and he said, daddy, we've got to stick together. Daddy, we've got to stick together. God is so glad to stick together with us in our grief. Right? He, he doesn't want us to get over our grief. He wants to go through grief with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So forever is a feast, heaven is a party. The occasion of the party is that death is defeated and we will receive comfort for our mourning. But in this passage, when Isaiah is telling us that there's a party, what it will be like, it's going to be fancy. There's fine wine, choice meats. He says that what the occasion of the party is. He then tells us who's on the guest list. And in these verses, he tells us who's on the guest list. In verse 6, he says that the Lord is preparing a feast for all the peoples of the earth. In verse 7, it says that the shadow of gloom will be removed. Some translations say it will be removed from over all of the nations. Isaiah, in verse 8, promised that God would wipe away all tears. Some translations say he will wipe, he will wipe away the tears from every face. All peoples, all nations, every face. And I don't think we can appreciate what a scandal that is. Isaiah is a Jew, and the fundamental understanding of the Jewish people in this moment, in Isaiah's time, is that they, ethnic Israelites, and ethnic Israelites alone, were inheritors of the promises of God. It was a pretty exclusive party in their mind until, in Isaiah 25, Isaiah says, all peoples, every nations, every face. God is throwing open the doors of the party to every tribe and tongue and people group. He's throwing open the doors of the party to every geopolitical entity. He's inviting every person, every face to this party. Heaven is a party. The occasion of the party is that death is defeated. Everyone, everywhere, is invited to the party. You and I and every person who has ever lived has been invited. The catch is that not everyone who has been invited comes. I get invitations all the time. And they go one of two places. On the side of the fridge, under a magnet, where they slowly pile up, and I don't know when things are happening or where or why, and then I forget about them and realize six months later that I never attended that thing. Oops. Or they just go straight in the garbage, which, let's just be real, is faster, right? And less guilt-inducing. Let's just... <laughs> in Isaiah 25, Isaiah says, In that day, the people will proclaim, This is our God. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. While everyone is invited to the party, not everyone chooses to attend. Because the attendees at this party will proclaim, this is our God. The invite is extremely personal. 
In the book of Genesis, there's a guy named Abraham who comes to follow the Lord. He calls, he calls God, my God, is what Abraham calls him, my God. Abraham has some kids, and do you know what his kids call God? The God of my father, Abraham. Do you see the difference? Now, some of them, throughout their life, they encounter this God, and they stop calling him the God of my father, Abraham, and they start calling him my God. They make a, they make a transition. And the people at the party are the people that make that shift. They don't call on the name of the Lord. They don't call on the name of the God of their mother or their father. The name of the God of their grandparents, their sibling, their spouse, they call on the name of the Lord for themselves. They choose to trust in him for themselves. They choose to wait for the party through the long, long years of difficulty, occasionally finding God's grace and mercy along the way. They trust they have faith. They accept the invitation. And my friends, today, today, there is an invitation waiting for you, an invitation to the party at the end of the world, a party that will last forever. And my guess, in fact, it's not my guess, I'm certain that it is not the first time that you've gotten an invitation to the party, and it's not the last in the, in the very first Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter has been accepted into Hogwarts and a letter comes and his aunt and uncle don't want him to know that that's the case, so they throw the letter away. And then the next day, another letter comes. And the next day, two or three letters come. And a few days later, there are so many invitations coming, they're flowing like water through the slot of mail in the door. And they're coming through the chimney and up the drains and through the windows. There's letters and invitations everywhere. And because God is a God of radical grace, that's what our lives are like. Invitation on invitation. Invitation around every corner, in every season, in every moment. And today, he's just asking for you to RSVP. Today, He's waiting for your yes. Today, he's hoping that you'll receive the invitation to the party. Today, he's hoping that you'll just say yes. So here we are on All Saints Day. Heaven on our mind and eternity in our hearts. In our noses is the scent of a flower we've never found, but we know might be out there somewhere. In our ears is the tune of a song that we just can't quite place. In our hearts there is a longing for a country yet unseen. Our grief and our hope, our memories from the future 
echoes of the party that will last forever, just like laughter coming down the corridor. J.R.R. Tolkien says, there is a place called heaven where the good here unfinished is completed and where the stories unwritten and the hopes unfulfilled are continued. He says, we may laugh together yet. Or as the scriptures say, then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd. Sounds like they might be having a party. The roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder and the voices said, praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest pure light white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, for these are true words that come from God. Let's pray. It feels like if I'm quiet enough, I can almost hear the laughter echoing down. And Jesus, some of us don't feel like laughing. So where there is sorrow, would you give us a fresh hope? Where there is grief, would you bring joy in the morning? Lord, would you teach us songs? Would you teach us the songs to the tune that we can't quite place? Comforter, Father, you're good to us. And we cannot wait to celebrate. Amen.